and take a trip down on my block when you see hidden potential young minds sharper than pencil and ain't afraid to speak they mind if they got something against you we standing with you we tackle issues like civic pride hate will cease to exist let's put our differences aside from my side to your side from dutch town to south side from penrose to north side from benton park to old north to west end the west side we bless when we step out we stand down rise up stand together wise up this is Stitchcast Studio, produced by St. Louis Story Stitchers in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to another special edition of Stitchcast Studio, where we'll be discussing a very important topic, domestic violence. The topic is led by our Stitchcast Studio youth with our special guest, licensed professional counselor Don Jones of Legacy Counseling. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Hello, everybody. I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Stitchcast Studio. I'm your host, Annalise, and I'm accompanied by a few members of our Stitchcast. Today, we're going to talk about domestic violence and what that means to us and how it can affect everyone. We have a special guest here named Don Jones here to help us with this topic. And I would like for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Just talk about what you do for a living and what you let, you know, like what led you to be here with us today. Yeah. So like you said, my name is Dawn Jones. I'm actually a licensed professional therapist here in the state of Missouri. Um, and I'm the owner of Legacy Counseling Services. And it's a um, counseling service that I created to give people who are in underserved community access to really good mental health services, specifically psychotherapy. Um, so some of my specialties is trauma. So I work a lot with those who have experienced trauma in the past or even in the present and they're trying to heal from the impact of it um, and also help people who are dealing with addictive behaviors and things like that. And so, you know, um, I was excited to hear about this conversation because in working with trauma, I deal with people who have been victimized directly or indirectly by domestic violence. Interesting, interesting. That actually leads me to my first question, which would be, it's understood that domestic violence can come in various forms. What are some of the common signs that you can see in a person? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, the, the signs that we see when a person is being um, victimized in domestic violence kind of depends upon the phase, I guess I would say, that they're in as it pertains to how long they've been in the relationship. And so those who are in earlier, kind of newer relationships, some of the things you want to look for is um, sudden changes of behavior, like their entire life really is surrounded by that person, where maybe before then they wanted to hang out, they wanted to have a good time, they wanted to be with family and friends, and then all of a sudden, they were increasingly less available to be with friends, so less available to be with family. Um, one of the early signs within the perpetrator is kind of manipulation that leads to isolation. And so the isolating tendencies begin pretty early. And so you will see a lot of friends and family members in the relationships isolate in a pretty extreme an extreme way and that's one of the early indicators that they may be in a domestic violence situation or maybe before they can give you an answer they always have to check with their partner we're not talking about we're committed we've been together for decades we're married we're talking about i met them last week last month and i have to check in so isolation is a big one up front um even a friend or family member expressing having done something sexually that they didn't necessarily feel comfortable they didn't maybe feel like they had space to say yes or no certain situations and they may not have physical bruises but maybe they're exhibiting fear of their partner um signs that they're not mentally emotionally or physically or sexually safe in the relationship i see and that's that's actually really common 
that um, a lot of people do. But like for me, I've honestly, I've seen a lot of those things, but I didn't immediately think domestic abuse. I always thought like um, they're just an introvert or like, you know, depression. So, yeah. What do you guys think? That's fair. I kind of always thought like, especially with if they're a young couple, that they're just kind of in that honeymoon phase and like super obsessed with each other. And their idea of love is that you're supposed to be around each other 24-7. So, but now I realize that I could be totally off. Most of, yeah. I, I think that's a, uh, looking back, yeah, I, I've saw I saw uh, signs that could have been indicators, but I think the the part, obviously not for the person that's in the situation, but for us on the outside looking in is knowing whether or not we should get involved. Mm -hmm. I had friends that dated and they would straight up fight each other. And there were cases where if somebody tried to get in between those two fighting each other, both of them would start fighting the person that, that tried to separate them. So like like it's, it it feel it just be feeling like the hard the hard thing for the person that's watching it happen is knowing whether or not to get involved. Yeah, that's a that's a common one for family and friends is like how involved do I get and even in the beginning trying to figure out what level of this is normal or healthy and what level isn't. And so what I would say is one of the things you can do is just to make sure that you are accessible to the person. So if you have suspicions that maybe this is going on, but you're not sure to continue to pursue them in relationship, continue to try to be a safe and comforting voice for them throughout the relationship. And over time, more and more signs will begin to kind of come up more of those red flags. So fear of physical retaliation may turn into bruises. And if you've maintained a safe, consistent presence in their life, they're more likely to actually say to you, this is what's happening uh, when they're ready, right? So at the end of the day, they have to be ready to leave, but you maintaining safe presence in their life can make the difference between them saying this is happening or not. Uh, and when it comes to knowing, like, is this normal? Because, I mean, they just kind of in love, right? You really want to look at, they only known each other for a month, and it feels like, you know, they are, um, you know, accepting gifts that you know they're not comfortable with or that they're being touched in a way that you know, like, mm, I've known them for 20 years. And I know that that touch makes them uncomfortable or maybe you're seeing them um, kind of sacrificing agency or control over their own decisions because the other person is uncomfortable. That's, that's not sacrifices you make early in the relationship. So you really want to kind of think about how long have they even been together, right? Is this the appropriate level of access? Definitely. <laughs> that is true. Um, and that's always like something to think about is like our own selves getting involved. But like even like the law getting involved and people that are in law enforcement, I guess my next question would be if, and I'm not sure if, if the therapist, I think you guys would know, uh, what is the process for the police handling a victim of domestic violence or a domestic violence situation? Like, do you feel like the victim would be comforted or feel safe enough to reach out? I want to say yes, <laughs> but I have had too many clients where they did not feel safe um, reaching out to police or they have reached out to law enforcement. And there are, there are certain challenges in how involved law enforcement can be in domestic disputes. And so there have been times where the cops were called and the cops would show up and basically say, there's nothing we can do because he lives. There's nothing we can do because you guys are, are married, right? Um, and she's like, no, I'm afraid he's hit me before. And they'll say, we'll call and get a restraining order. So in the moment, there are certain things that have to be 
currently present for the cops to get involved, right? So is he is he currently or she currently putting their hands on you? Um, are you are you bleeding? Is your life in danger? Are you being threatened? Like there are certain things that they look for that may be consistent with sexual assault or physical assault, and then they'll get involved. But there are certain disputes that they'll tell you, I'm so sorry, but I can't get involved with domestic call family court or something like that. So it's tough because cops, you know, are limited by law, but also there are times where victims have been arrested if maybe they were defending themselves, right? So I will always tell clients, call the police, right? Get get safe. But then also it's tough because I can't guarantee that if they call the police, the police will, will do something, but still call. You see what I mean? It's tough. Definitely. What is uh you you mentioned uh marriage earlier uh specifically if uh <clears throat> if there was someone in in a marriage who who's I, I don't I don't know their partner j- just got abusive this wasn't something that you 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 know you know this wasn't something that was there from the beginning it just started happening with them being married what what would that person do what would what would be their process of trying to escape that situation. So there's actually two things that I want to hit on. One is domestic violence doesn't just happen. Most times, almost always, we see a um, a, a, a prepping kind of phase take place where before maybe they hit them, they may have been the first time that they hit them or that they, you know, sexually assaulted them. But when when I look back into the past or the history of the relationship, there, have, there will be signs of control and manipulation or discomfort, not feeling like you can say no. But those are actually considered domestic violence. If I feel like you might hit me, that is still physical abuse, right? And so before they got physical, there was probably threats already being made. There was probably fear already kind of starting out. So typically it didn't just happen. Um, And so that's where it gets tough with the marriage is you almost have to help the person realize the cycle of abuse within that relationship because there's an actual cycle that the relationship go through. So you almost have to help the victim realize the cycle of behavior that they're going through before many of them will take the call. There are many people who die in these relationships because they, right after the abuse will happen, there's this period that they go through where it's like a honeymoon. It was like, this is who I got with in the first place. And so that period of time sells them all over again. So then they recommit themselves back to the relationship. And so the battle of, of getting them out can be tough. But once they're ready, one or two things, how isolated are they from their family and friends? Can they call a family member or a friend or a therapist and say, I am ready to get out of this? And so when that happens, you want to make sure that there is a safety plan in place. There is some process. So you, typically, we don't want them to leave right away unless they're in immediate danger. We want to create a plan where they can safely leave um, because if the worst thing a victim can do is say to the, the perpetrator, I'm leaving because that tends to escalate their control and escalate their behavior. And that's when things get more violent. And so we really want to make sure that we create a safe way for them to leave when they're ready. And we can involve different organizations like Alive. We can involve law enforcement, family, friends, and things like that for them to get out. So it really is put a plan in place that gets them out. So packing a bag and clothes slowly begin to disappear. 
through the course of the week so that when it's time for the victim to leave, all they got to do is go with what's on their body because over time, they would have used family and friends to get their items out of the house, like clothes. Um, whatever you don't have to take, don't take. Leave it. Because again, we're trying to get you out physically, uh, physically safe, if, if that makes sense. And so if the safety plan is possible, get that in place. If it's not possible and you're in immediate danger, call the cop, tell them you're not safe, and they can, they can remove you out of the house, even if they can't get them out of the house. They can they can take you somewhere safe. So um, during like the uh, like like if there was a uh, J Lo enough type situation mm-hmm. where there kid involved, uh, how how drastically does that change how 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 they go about getting out of that situation? When you say they, you mean the victim? Yes, uh, and, and I say and I say uh, victim uh, because in any event that is in the event that the mother isn't the one being abused uh how like 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 you know you know naturally when if you if you live in an abusive situation you probably don't want to leave your kid but but that's still the child's parent so how how does how how does that work so legally they both as parents have have rights and so the the victim whether that's male or female leaving and taking the kid that is they can do that where it gets gray is is the perpetrator wants access to the child unless they get the court system involved like child protective custody or you know family court anything like that unless they get that involved the perpetrator has not lost their parental rights and so they have to be careful in how they leave so that they don't get charged with kidnapping so leave take your kids but then you can report you can physically call child protective services and report the abuse you're not the perpetrator and so you can call and report your spouse for abuse and once that happens then they can begin to instruct you on how to eliminate or decrease access between child and perpetrator. They'll get involved at that point. Um, so once you leave, you do want to immediately go ahead and make that report and, ha- and ask them what you should do next to make sure the child is safe. And and that and that works regardless of if the abuser has actually abused the child or not, right? So te- technically, no. I'm going to say that because if the abuse is happening but the child is witnessing it, um, there is a little bit of area and whether or not that is also considered child abuse. As a mental health professional, indirectly, that child has been traumatized. I treat so many grown-ups who witness abuse as kids and we are doing trauma work because watching watching the parent get beat um, or raped or cussed out or anything like that has traumatic impacts on a person watching it when you're, when you're a child. So there's traumatic impacts, but technically the child hasn't been abused. So when that happens, again, you want to get safe and get connected with the organization like Alive, maybe get a restraining order. When the restraining order is in place, um, there are typically ways in which the court can help orchestrate um the child having relationship with the perpetrator um, because if the child isn't being abused by the perpetrator it's, it's not considered maybe unsafe for them to go back with but you do want to make sure you get the courts involved to guide you through that because you may be able to fight for supervised visits for the perpetrator but again that's something that lawyers and the courts have to decide you just have to make sure that you call them and you get them involved as soon as possible um, and just kind of advocate for the child's safety understood well, I was only going to say that, um, which might veer from the subject a little, uh, that we've been talking a lot mostly about romantic kind of domestic violence situations. And I'm sure there those aren't the only kinds that exist. There could be familial situations between like your parents, your cousins or friends. Um, and I was just going to say like, 
are they mostly the same? Is the only difference the relationship or do they have different kind of patterns um, or outcomes? Or are they easier? Is it easier to get out of one situation rather than the other? Actually, um, they are. So by definition, they'll all be considered domestic abuse. You may hear some people say domestic abuse or domestic violence. And then other people might say partner violence or um, incident partner violence or incident partner abuse to kind of make that distinction. Violence is just domestic, meaning in the home. Um, mm. Intimate partner makes it more specific. And so you, you're actually absolutely correct. They they are separate, even though they're kind of Venn diagram, they overlap. Um, so partner abuse falls under domestic violence, but there are other types of abuse that would be under that as well. So when you're talking about parent-child, um, that's hard to get out simply because the child doesn't have, they're minors. They don't have those same freedoms to just pack up and leave. And in situations where the child and the, the partner is being abused, um, the child is looking to the partner like, get me out, mom or dad. But at the same time, mom or dad is, is scared of the perpetrator. So the child is almost trapped, like voiceless. How do I get out of it? So that's when um, teachers, mental health professionals like myself, therapists, um, police, um, if you're connected to a religious organization, maybe your pastor or your priest or something like that, that's when that's important because we have to report it. And so having dialogue in schools and different programs like this is so crucial because if I'm 12 and I'm hearing this and I'm realizing, oh, my teacher is a mandated reporter and I go to school the next day and I say I'm being abused um, because I heard my teacher talk about it or whatever the case may be, my teacher has to report it. And then when it's reported, they're going to come and do an investigation and potentially take me out of this house. And so the, when it's a child, it's hard to get out because you can't just leave. You can report your own abuse, to be clear. You can call and report it mm. yourself. Um, anybody can report abuse. So you can call and say, I'm being abused. And, and they'll ask details and open an investigation. But that can be dangerous because what if you're caught? So all of those type of thoughts go along sometimes in, in, in the child's mind. And so it's hard for them to get out because they almost need somebody to advocate for them. Um, with siblings, that's challenging as well when they're sibling abu abuse because um, oftentimes siblings have a relationship that can feel secretive. So if you ever seen, I'm thinking about me and my sister, we'll have conversations that my mom doesn't know about it because that's my sister, right? Yeah. So imagine that same secretive dynamic in an abuse situation. A lot of times parents don't even found, find out about the abuse until their kids are, are much older. Um, but when it is found out, it's very difficult because um, both kids are typically minors, sometimes not, but both kids are, are typically minors, which means the parents have a certain right to take care of both kids. And so um, sometimes they're separated. One has to go to maybe an uncle's house and the other one stays at home. They may switch from time to time while one gets help. If the perpetrator is older, then legally the law gets involved and the, the person can be, the sibling can be arrested. But again, it takes someone older than you, like a parent or guardian, to advocate for your safety, which means they have to find out. Does that help answer the question of how, how it could be difficult in other domestic violence situations? Absolutely. The, the family situations seem a lot more harder to try to navigate and escape from. Yeah, definitely. And so how does domestic violence affect the family dynamic? And does it differ between age and gender? Or is it all the same? Um, and so when you say age versus gender, are you thinking specifically of like frequency? Is the frequency the same between age 
and gender are you thinking impact? Uh, both. So um, I'll answer the family dynamic one first. Um, and so domestic violence, how it impacts the family dynamic really is it creates a system of control. Um, the, the only way domestic violence thrives and works is if the perpetrator establishes control over those that he or she is is abusing right so if you don't have control over me and you are you scare me i'm gonna leave but if you've established control and you scare me well you control me so where i'm gonna go and this does that make sense and so the family dynamic typically looks like one of control and intimidation so whoever the perpetrator is has different levels of control and intimidation even if they're not physically abusing you so if the perpetrator is a, is abusing their spouse or their partner, but not the kids. The kids will still likely operate within a system where that perpetrator has control over them and can intimidate their actions, even if they're not experiencing the abuse because they're still scared. So domestic violence, family dynamics is typically a cycle of control in the cycle of intimidation. Often the kids or whoever's in the home, the whole family is often isolated. Um, the dynamic is also kind of like Jacqueline Hyde, just like the perpetrator will be. So out in public, oftentimes the image of the family is that we're good, we're perfect, we're happy, everything is great. And then it flips behind closed doors. So it's a very inconsistent and confusing family dynamic. Um, that's what we kind of see with, within the, the family, within the home. Um, so far as age versus gender, um, I would say that age plays a bigger part in how domestic violence impacts someone than gender. Um, gender plays more of a part in it as a person is older and cultural expectations of gender begin to play, right? So for men, as they get older, they're more likely to, to show um physical anger, if that makes sense. Women are more likely, though they can also be perpetrators and show anger, they're more likely to become victims. And so a child that grew up in a domestic violence home or home where there was abuse, it's more likely for the male to grow up and become an abuser. And it's more likely for the woman to grow up and become um, a victim. That's not always the case. It's just kind of what we see more predominantly. They flip where men grow up and end up being abused and the woman grows up and be the perpetrator. Um, but when we think of age, the younger you are, when you are exposed to the abuse, so like if you're a baby, you may not remember it, there'll be a little bit less impact. But once you get to school age, that's when the impact really ramps up. And so um, kids in school age, they may cry a lot. They may have anger themselves. Um, they may self-harm. Um, they may bedwet. Um, they may have either no appetite or, or eat, overeat. So some of the things that we would see in an adulthood, but slightly different. Um, a big one is just a kind of uncontrollable kind of sadness and emotion they have. They don't have an ability to regulate their emotion, disruptive behaviors. They may startle easily, things like that. But then again, once they get older and then they get to middle school, it may look like bullying, right? It may look like practicing things on other people that they saw at home that you're like, hmm, a kid in middle school shouldn't know about that. Um, they may be very guilty. So whenever they do something wrong, overly apologizing, calling themselves names like stupid, loser, things like that. Those are kids that probably are growing up in a home with domestic violence. Um, they may be depressed or have anxiety, all of that things that can exhibit in middle school. And then it progresses into high school from there. I mean, high school, you're more likely to see them running away. Um, or becoming codependent with, with their own intimate partners or things like that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Anna, go ahead. Oh, no, you're good. Um, 
I was just gonna say that that's uh that's really insightful because I recently watched um this movie called I Tanya and it's about the story about Tanya Harding and she was an American figure skater. Anyway, she grew up in an abusive home and then when she got older, she allowed herself to be abused because I don't, I don't know the thought process, but like it was just like everything that you just explained literally happened in the movie and it was just like a domino effect throughout her entire career. And um yeah, it's it's crazy. Because it's like it could happen at any moment because she didn't expect any of that to ever happen to her. She thought she had it all together. And then when it happened, it was like a nonstop train. Yeah, most of I, um I seen that as well. Uh, dang, I just forgot what my question was. Just give me a second. It's going to just circle back to me. It's going to come back. That's all. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I just said that. <laughs> Yeah. And, and yo, I, I was really feeling that question too. <laughs> oh boy. What was it about besides domestic violence? That, that's exactly what it was about. It was, that, that's, that's exactly what it was about. Okay. Um, okay. Oh boy. I got a supplementary. Okay, go ahead. Well, I know like, so I kind of felt earlier where she was going to lead to when you were asking about if abuse can start out of nowhere um, and how there are usually signs and red flags, even if you don't notice them at first throughout the relationship that will kind of tip you off to that. And so that kind of led me to think about or want to ask are what are other common myths or misconceptions about domestic violence or abuse um, that you could kind of dispel or correct for us this evening? I love, love, love that question. I don't know if you can see me like nodding my head, um, but I love that question because a lot of the myth is it keeps people um, a little bit more isolated. It makes it harder for them to come out. So um, one of the biggest myths is that men are always the perpetrators. That is one of the biggest myths. And it, it, we have to debunk that because we are finding more and more that um, people who identify as, as female are abusing their partners as well. And I think also debunking this idea of men being the perpetrator is important because it, it leaves the conversation in the context of relationship where there is one who identifies male and one who identifies female. And so I think just over just making the nerd the, the the term being um perpetrator and victim or survivor you can use those interchangeably is more helpful and not create an agenda with it because um it's not always a male that's abusing so that's one very powerful myth i think that we have to um debunk i think um the other myth that we have to debunk is that um if you this idea that it's not physical abuse because i didn't touch you right i didn't i didn't hit you mm -hmm. right if i was gonna be if i was gonna be abused about a backhand you things like that we have to debunk that it's only physical abuse if i hit you it's only sexual abuse sexual abuse if i rape you right that that no if you throw something at me if you put my physical safety on the line with your words or with your actions that falls under the category of physical abuse. If you ask me to do something sexually and I tell you that I'm not comfortable with it and you talk me into it, you, you are you are convincing me to give you consent when I've already said no. That can fall under the category of sexual manipulation, which or sexual intimidation, which is sexual abuse. And so I think we have to debunk these ideas that these extreme behaviors
behaviors are abuse. These the less extreme, less intense behaviors are still abusive in nature. If there is control, manipulation, and fear present, those are abusive behaviors. And so I think we also have to debunk the myth that there has to be extreme to fit. Um, I think another one that we have to debunk is that one of the abuses exists um, by themselves. When oftentimes we find that. Um, multiple forms of abuse, abuse can happen at one time. So um, oftentimes if a person is being physically abused, they are almost always being psychologically abused as well. Some of them can exist by themselves, but often um, they don't. Um, one more that comes to mind is we only have three categories typically that we talk about. We talk about sexual, we talk about physical, and we talk about psychological. But we have to remember that there is economic or financial abuse. And there's also spiritual abuse that can happen in domestic situations. But those two are also uh, very, very common. There was another one on the tip of my tongue, and I want to try to remember what it was. Oh, I know that if a person is being abused, the perpetrator doesn't love them. Um, I think we have to, that's a myth. Oftentimes, the perpetrator does actually love the person that abused The perpetrator is, in a lot of ways, scared and broken themselves emotionally. And the way that they have learned to deal with that is through control and violence and manipulation. And so they can absolutely love their partner and still be toxic and abusive to them. And if we can acknowledge that those things can exist together, I think more people can feel like have permission to leave. Yes, you're right. They do love you, but they're abusing you and it's time to go. Um, that those, those two things can be true at the same time. Thank you for that. Wow, yes, that was very insightful. I did remember my question and I wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget it again. So, uh, let's say there's a 17-year-old, right? Uh, his, his, his mother's abusive and he runs away. Now, she can, uh, now, now, uh, if he runs to like a family member's house or whatnot, she could call the police for kidnapping, right? So, she can, but if she, if 17-year-old goes to aunt's house um, because mom is abusive or, and aunt calls and reports it, a mom can call and say my child has been kidnapped all she wants. And then when a cop shows show up aunt says there's an abuse it's been reported whatever the case may be and that's where it's possible that they can't be charged for kidnapping right so a 17 year old is a minor and the minor has been abused by the guardian or the parent so if i report this and i tell them you know mom is threatening to come and pick them back up what do i need to do on the crisis line they'll tell you call the cops and all that kind of jazz and so chances are they won't be charged with kidnapping they just need to make sure that they report it got you so uh if, but if they don't report it then they are on the hook for potential kidnapping right so let's say uh yeah. let's say the 17 year old uh, ran away and uh they're on the run and they turn 18 while they're on the run what 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 does that change anything or are they still held accountable for running away how, how does that work but once the child becomes 18 um whatever the the child is doing is that they, they can get their own consent at that point illegal if say they ran away at 17 and they were at the aunt's house and the mom who's abusive caught and press charges for kidnapping that case still has to go through the process even though the child is older the report has been made the charge has been given we'll say it goes that far so then it's going to go through the court process it's not 
not likely to go that far, though, because in the midst of the investigation and, and the lawyers doing their job, they're going to realize the child was being abused. More than likely, it's not going to go that far. It's going to backfire on the mom because now she's going to have a case for um, being abusive. And also at 17, you can be emancipated. And so, um, you know, that 17-year-old by leaving could end up in a situation where they can be emancipated and become a, their own guardian. Yes, sir. You know what time it is. It's time for another edition of Stitchcast Studio featuring an original piece by Stitchcast alumni Emira Burns and Brandon Lewis called Different. I remember that day when we were in the sun, but you had that gun. And so I looked into the distance and said, there's no need for that. We're just having fun. But then you looked at me and said, this is what makes me a man and you wouldn't understand. And I didn't. I didn't understand how a piece of iron could make you more of a man than what you already were. But then it came to me, days later of course, that you were searching for something, lurking over your own shoulder, Trying to find answers from your past So you'd hide behind this mask Thinking that your broken smile would get you by But not for long Because then I came along and tried to pick up the broken pieces That you had left behind You see time after time I told you to listen to your right mind But you still went left and left Pieces, broken pieces And you can never find the whole you so only half of you lived while the other half died. You grew, you grew cold and began to lie about everything just to deny your pain. And so it crippled me to watch you grow sour. Because I told you, I told you I'd said I'd seen this sight before. September 11, 2001, the only difference is you were the building and your boys were flying the planes. You made your life stand still so they could burn you down. And word around town is you're killing now. Not with the newest J's or with puns and punchlines. They're telling me guns and caution tape, but I'm still trying to remember what happened to you not joining a gang because here you are again behind another cell. And then you tell me I killed them because he was trying to take my cells and see there. I knew you'd never be the same because you had some type of beast inside of you that couldn't be tamed. So I decided to stay in my lane. I wanted no part of your games, no Bonnie, no Clyde. I just wanted to owe you back, but we couldn't see eye to eye. We couldn't see eye to eye because I don't think you understand. The world doesn't welcome with open arms. Only open hands. Perception is not always reality. You see the world through a broken lens. And if I see the world as broken, that's because broken is what it is. Now, maybe I shouldn't have joined a gang. But either way, this game is to the death. I'm looking over my shoulders for enemies if I don't. Those memories of me are all you'll have left. You think it's bad that the new me compared to the old me seems worse? Because I look at me all the time and I promise you I've seen worse. This is not a movie. 
There's no rehearsing for the hearse scene. That's not how this scene works. You know what I think is worse than me killing the game. The game killing me first, but put the guns down, right? We're just having fun. And so let's say I put them away and then I'm unprotected. And even when playing, mama always said you can never be too safe. So sure, <laughs> sure. Sometimes I miss the old me, but the old me barely knows me. The good die young, I'd rather live slowly. If only you could show me why you miss the old me. I've grown up, I've slowed down. Can't you see that this is old me? I'm in too deep. The more I struggle, the more I sink. The more I love you, the more I think. The more I think, the more I dream. The more I dream, the more I struggle. The more I struggle, the more I sink. <laughs> and I want to reach out. But I'm afraid that if you grab this hand, I'll only pull you down. And I don't want to take this chance. The more I struggle, the more I sink, sink, sink. Don't you understand? This is quicksand. And I've, I've tried to keep this life from around you. Nobody's ever brought anybody out of quicksand. The person drowning only pulls you down too. Don't let me pull you down too. So, so is it as simple as the child or uh, another family member uh, saying that the mother abused them, or, or like how 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 hard is it to prove that that you're getting abused? Depends upon the type of abuse, to be honest. So uh, physical abuse is typically the easiest to prove because there are marks on the body. So bruises, welts, things like that. Those are pretty easy. Um, if there is a young person listening and you want to report abuse, take pictures because because your, your, your body's going to heal. Once those, those things have healed, it's a little bit harder to prove, still possible to prove, but just a little bit harder. Um, um, sexual abuse, if that's happening, of course, there are certain examinations that can happen where medically abuse can be, can be proven. But even without the physical abuse, there are therapists who are specifically trained to work with minors and through the work with them, um, they can um, go to court on their behalf and say, no, these are all of abuse. These are the ways that I see it present, therapeutically, um, law enforcement, teachers, family re family members, all of that, they get involved in the process to help prove that abuse, abuse is happening. But again, the type of abuse makes it easier or harder to prove, but all of them are possible to prove because there are marks that you can't see, so your emotions, you know, your, your mind, or your spirit. Can't see them, but we can prove it. Mm. Right, thank you. I have a question. So, from me growing up, I noticed like in media, like I'm in my early 20s right now. So like when I was growing up and I was looking at a lot of media, it was like the height of Twilight. If anybody knows about Twilight, you know that Edward was creepy. And like he broke into Bella's house and he would always be around her and stalking her. And she thought it was just romantic. And um, fast forward into like this year and last year, there's more movies out about like that, that they are just like normalizing those behaviors. So my question for you is, how do you think that, do you think that media is doing a good job of portraying domestic violence? Or do you think that they're straying away from it and trying to mask it as something like the alpha male or like, you know, romance? So love this question. I'm smiling so hard when you're asking it because I love this question. In a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, what as mental health professionals, what we would see as domestic violence or abuse is being romanticized in, in media. When you think of you, Fifty Shades of Grey, Twilight, you know, movies like that, um, even the whole 
they're not really interested, but I pursue them anyway with intensity and then I change their mind, right? Some of these things are being romanticized. Like, this, and don't get me wrong, pursuit in relationship is beautiful, but there's a certain intensity of it where it's, it's control and manipulation. Um, and so that makes it dangerous, though, because as consumers of media, especially when we're younger, we don't have the life experience to tell the difference between what is written and sounds good and what is just, just, just um, what is dangerous and emotionally unhealthy in real life. And so I think it's tough when it's romanticized and then there are not enough conversations happening in real life about what healthy pursuit looks like and what manipulation looks like, what gaslighting looks like. If we're not having those real life conversations, then we think it's cute when we tell a boy or a girl, like, nah, I'm good. And they're like, come on, baby, you know, I'm trying to talk you into it and we giggling because it's cute and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. If, if a person says no and they really mean it, and maybe you ask two or three more times, but if they keep saying no, they said no. And it's, it's time to, to move on. To do more is to um, take away their no and try to create a yes. So I do think it's being romanticized a bit. But there are other movies that probably show a better picture of what domestic violence looks like. The problem is a lot of those are not um, kid-friendly. <laughs> They're kind of hard to watch and can be triggering, but they are probably more realistic depiction of what it feels like to be in an abusive relationship. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true because, yeah, it's not a lot out there. And on top of that, I had another comment that I was thinking about earlier when you mentioned um, financial abuse. Um, one of my other questions was, how does race play in it? But I feel like I answered my own question because when you think about our demographic versus like someone that's like white or from another region with more money, um, it doesn't matter if it's better or worse. There's no, you know, somebody has it worse, I don't think. Um, because, yeah, either you can say you can call the police and the person the perpetrator could pay off the police or um you can call the police and depending on your demographic or neighborhood they don't have to answer so yes crazy mm. that's unsettling to think about like worst case scenarios for both of those situations yeah like um like that recent stuff with britney spears like i never would have thought of that as like domestic abuse but it is it's just from her family. Yeah, her own dad. Yeah. Oh, I guess that's a good question. Like, if somehow the abuser has legally finessed the system, like, and there's technically you're out of power. She wasn't a minor, but she was like contractually ob obligated. And another form of abuse can be from like a company or your uh, employers. Um, you see that a lot with sometimes musicians getting abused by the labels. So like when you're in that situation, when they do get out of it, it always seems like a bad ending. Like they just lose everything in order to escape. It, is that always the only solution? No escape or lose everything to escape? No, that's, that's a good question. That's not the only solution. I think in situations where you are just in a system where there's an extreme difference in power, that that is common to happen. And so even though, you know, what happens in entertainment industry isn't, isn't domestic violence, we do see the same patterns of kind of control there. So um, if you're an artist in the, in, in the entertainment system and you are, you know, 
trying to make it. There are people in the record labels and people in the in the movies and all of that that are higher ups than you. They have more power than you. And so to speak out and to leave because they have more power, they can blackball you, they can ruin your reputation, things like that, because there's such a huge gap in the, in your power versus theirs. And more like domestic violence situations or maybe, you know, if you are on your job and your job is being abusive in some ways or controlling in some ways. Um, and your job specifically, you can leave and not lose anything. And some of that is because you can sue them. Like there are so many things that are there to protect you um, that if you want to pursue legality, you can. Um, some people don't. But also once you leave, there are so many other jobs available that you could apply somewhere else. Even if they blackball you, say, in your city, if you move to another city, chances of them also blackballing you there are certainly not. And so I give that example to say you don't always lose everything when you leave. In domestic violence situations, a lot of times you do have to start over or, and rebuild unless you have that solid support system that I talked about earlier in the podcast. So if you have a solid support system, solid friends, and family that are kind of always been there and you can go there you're not quite rebuilding because a lot of times they'll help you you can stay here while you find a job and things like that so you don't hit rock bottom necessarily but you do have to start over in some ways so the more support a person has when they're leaving domestic violence the the, the better um, especially because it is not uncommon for people to leave domestic violence and go back and so the more support that they have, um, the more resources they can that surrounds them when they leave, the less likely it will be that they hit rock bottom, they have nothing, or that they go back. I'm actually glad that you brought that up, the fact that um kind of the starting process of rebuilding and getting their life back together. Cause I was pretty much gonna ask you after they get out of that situation, um, if you could go through like what the process might look like or might be like, and not just physically and financially, like finding a new place, but even mentally uh, unlearning those defensive and submissive behaviors and other things like that. Yes, so the process in my opinion, and I'm sure there are some mental health professionals that may disagree, but in my opinion, the process is not linear so there's not a step one step two step three um I, well step one is, is definitely leaving it connected to resources but what step two looks like may be different depending upon the circumstance so i'll just kind of lay out what components i think are important when you leave so when you're leaving when you're leaving some of the components that are important to to have in place is i already said the support system but gotta be connected to some mental health um, some therapy um, because oftentimes not only do you have to heal from the traumatic impact of the abuse but like you said you have to unlearn some of those thoughts that you began to believe about yourself um, and some of those emotions that, that come up um, when you think about the partner or when you think about the beliefs that you have about yourself so there's some unlearning to do and there's some healing to do that has to be done with a, a trained mental health professional because we know what to look for we know the techniques to help address some of those things for example it's not uncommon for people to leave domestic violence situations and believe that they were the problem because they would have experienced something that we call gaslighting which is a type of manipulation where you make the other person feel like they're crazy for thinking that you've been disrespectful or you've been rude or you've been abusive you've gaslighted them and made them think that they deserved it if they would be different or do something different then the abuse wouldn't have happened so they have to unlearn that and to unlearn this idea that they're the problem or that they deserved it. And so when, when we're working with people who are leaving domestic violence, we're targeting those things, helping them to cope with those thoughts 
and really helping helping them to experience the truth of what they experienced. That there's nothing that you did to deserve it, no matter how disrespectful you were, no matter how emotionally dysregulated you are, you never deserve to have somebody put their hands on you. So we have to almost ground them in facts and then they have to cope with that. They have to feel that because they've never felt it before. They felt crazy for years, right? So they need really good, solid mental health services. And then they probably need some community resources as well for connecting them to organizations that help men and women leaving domestic violence reconnect to life. So these places typically will help them get connected to law enforcement if need be or any legal things that they need, but also helps them find a job if they need to relocate. The organization will help them to relocate. Some of these organizations will actually help you leave the, the, the home safely. And so they really want to make sure that they're connected with community resources that specialize in, in domestic violence. And so I would say that those three components are super um, important. If they have solid support in friends and family, they get connected to mental health services for some work with trauma and thoughts and emotions. And then they also get connected to community resources that can help them help them rebuild. And this is years of a journey. And so people don't leave and be okay within the year. They're typically healing from the impact of this for years. Even after they have a solid job, solid living situation, all of that, they're still probably healing for some of the impacts of it. Okay, so uh, uh, I asked because, uh, Ms. Dawn, I want to make sure that you have a, a opportunity to say anything that you feel like needs to be said. Um, people, uh, we have we have a pretty variety, uh, a, pr- a pretty, uh, there's a lot of variety in the listeners of our podcast. So uh, is there anything that you feel like needs to be said in the event that uh, a victim of domestic violence is listening? So one of the things that I think is is important is you are in a um, domestic violence situation, you are not alone. You probably feel like you're alone. You probably feel like you have no support. And people are going to look at you like you're crazy. They're going to think that you're weak and all of those things. You are not weak. You are not crazy. You are not alone. Not only are there other people who have survived what you're going through, but there are, there are um, again, organizations that will help you. So if you're out and about, say, just living your life, and you see a yellow sign outside of a building that says safe place, they can help you. So fire, um, fire stations, quick trips, and police stations, those are examples. But quick trips are really good ones because they look a little bit less... Um, suspicious so say you're being followed and going to maybe you're scared to go to the police station or the fire department because your partner's behind you you can go to a quick trip and tell them you need a safe space and they are trained to help you and so safe spaces are um again looking for that yellow sign outside of the building another thing that i wanted to talk about and i, I mentioned it several times but the cycle of abuse I want to make sure that I say that because if you are unsure that you're in, if you're in a abusive relationship, I want you to know what to look for. Okay. So, um, at the point of a explosion, that's what I'll call it. So when the abuse is happening, no matter what form of abuse it is, right after the abuse happens, you're going to feel almost like a honeymoon period is what we call it, where, um, everything feels like it was in the beginning when you loved each other and he or she looks like the person that you um, wanted to be with they, the person that they promised to be they're starting to do those things now so you feel loved and cared for you almost forget about what just happened everything feels calm maybe you're getting gifts all of that kind of stuff that's usually right after the abuse happens 
no babies I'm so sorry I won't do it again sometimes there's some blaming in there like you know you just make me crazy those type of things right whenever you whenever you do that it just makes me crazy and I just can't can't help myself making me feel so special in love after that period it's kind of an escalation that happens so you begin to feel like okay something's changing oftentimes you can't put into words exactly what's changing but you're feeling it and what it looks like is the perpetrator may look be a little bit more frustrated be a little bit more aggressive um, a little bit more controlling but not the full explosive behavior and you're trying to do whatever you can you're walking on eggshells trying to do whatever you can not to piss them off not to make them grab you not to make them call you out your name or um, take all your money out of your bank account you're trying to walking on eggshells trying to be almost perfect how do I prevent the escalation and the explosion but the whole time this is happening the perpetrator is actually escalating to the explosive behavior so they may poke at you to make you do something and then blame you for the explosion um, and so you're trying to avoid it walk on eggshells and they may actually be pursuing um, an escalating behavior and then the explosion happens and it starts all over again and so that's kind of what that cycle will look like if there is domestic violence or domestic abuse happening in your home or in your relationship I did have one last question if it's alright that kind of tied in to what Brandon had said I was just going to ask about what are some resources I'm not sure if you're uh, based locally here with us um, but what are some resources that we could give out to people listening or that come from lower income uh, neighborhoods and they maybe can't afford either therapy or or any other type of resources that may be available to people trying to get out of domestic violence? Um, so the organizations in St. Louis that I would recommend is Alive and Safe Connections. Um, those two organizations have therapists on staff, um, therapists and social workers on staff that can help you get the help that you need, help you get out of the situation if, if you're not safe. And so give them a call. They'll take you through the process um, and let you know kind of the, the steps from there. Um, other organizations that I can think of that are not domestic violence specific, but they do help people if they are experiencing domestic violence. If you are under the age of 18 and you identify as female um, and you have children, almost home is a good option for you. Give them a call and see if they have a bed, a bed available for you. They have, they typically have a therapist on staff there to help you. If you're again, 18 or under and you're a woman, um, our, our almost home is a good one. Um, they all, they have different kind of lengths of time that you can stay, help you with employment. If you're still in school, help you get to school, those type of things. If you are over the age of 18, again, unfortunately female, not enough resources for men. I hate that, but again, female, um, and you have children, Our Ladies Inn is also a good option. You can be pregnant or um, already have children in, in those situations. So you don't have to be pregnant, but you have to have a child at least. I think I'm saying that right. So be pregnant or and or have a child. And both of these organizations can help you. I've actually taught at um, Our Ladies Inn on domestic violence before so I do know that they will help you if that is the situation that you're leaving. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yes, beautiful. Thank you so much for that. So I will say, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier when I talked throughout the podcast, but it's a lot of times, especially in the black community, when we think of being a victim or a survivor of abuse, we, we associate that with weakness. Um, you are not weak. That is not why the perpetrator chose you. That is not why you stayed in a relationship um, or anything like that. You're not weak. You're not broken. There's not anything wrong with with you. Um, a perpetrator has more than likely spent their life learning how to manipulate and control. 
So there's nothing broken in you. Um, there's no reason that they chose you. And they, they chose you and that's, that's unfortunate, but you're not broken. Um, and you're not weak, no matter who may look at you and say that. Um, and so I just want to make sure that I just share that with, with everyone, that you deserve love, you deserve safety, you deserve to be cared for, you do not deserve to be mistreated or talked down to. You are way too much of a valuable human being. So I want to encourage everybody listening to get safe. Tell somebody, it would be probably one of the scariest things that you do, but tell someone safe and get safe. Wow, it's crazy how we can stay in, 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 in terrible situations because they're familiar or because of how scary change is. That's wild. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for listening to yet another episode of Stitchcast Studio. I've been your host, Annalise, and we hope you found this podcast insightful. If you're between the ages of 16 and 24 and want to know how you can join our Stitchcast family, be sure to go to storystitchers.org to apply. Thanks again for listening, and we out. Thank you for listening. And last but not least, we want to give a very special shout out to the Stitchcast Studio sponsors. Stitchcast Studio Season 2 in 2021 is sponsored by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund three-year grant from 2020 to 2022, Arts and Education Council, PNC Grant, and Lush Corporations, the Charity Pot. Peace in the Prairie is presented with support from Missouri Arts Council, a state agency which receives support from the state of Missouri and the National Endowment for Arts. Additional support is provided by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund, Missouri Foundation for Health, City of St. Louis Youth at Risk Crime Prevention Grant of 2020, Stewart Family Foundation, and Kranzberg Arts Foundation. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches. Story stitches.